referred to to you know the the near collapse or the coming collapse of the of the Lebanese economy. The Lebanese economy has has collapsed. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. I'm your host Zach Wheeler, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Bobby Corsi and Amanda Young. This week, tragedy struck Lebanon. Over 2,000 tons of ammonium nitrate stored in a warehouse in Beirut's port exploded with earth-shattering force, ripping apart the center of Beirut, destroying hospitals, businesses, and the homes of an estimated 300,000 people. Hundreds lost their lives. The scale of destruction and the toll on the Lebanese people is heartbreaking. Prior to the explosions, the political, economic, and public health environment within Lebanon was already near collapse. The explosions have exacerbated these underlying crises in a truly unimaginable way, with protesters taking to the streets calling for radical change, and the Prime Minister announcing his resignation, the future of Lebanon is uncertain. To help us understand the port explosions, coupled with the structural, political, economic, and public health issues pushing Lebanon towards collapse, today on the podcast, we're joined by Dr. Stephen Cook. Dr. Stephen Cook is Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies, as well as the Director of the International Affairs Fellowship for Tenured International Relations Scholars at the Council on Foreign Relations. Alongside writing as a columnist for Foreign Affairs magazine, Dr. Cook has authored several reports and articles for international relations journals, news publications, and opinion magazines. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Hi, Stephen. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for coming. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you. So we'd like to start off the podcast by discussing the tragic explosion in Beirut's port last week. So could you describe for us what happened on August 3rd? Well, just as you said, there was two enormous explosions, the second explosion bigger than the first, um, that some press reports indicate is the biggest non-nuclear explosion in history. And, you know, it, it, you take a look at both the video of the explosions and then the aftermath of it, it, it it's hard to not believe that that's the case. Uh, it absolutely devastated Lebanon's port area, which is tragic because Lebanon imports 80% of its food, fuel, and medicines. And the question is, how is the country going to be resupplied without that port? And, you know, some analysts have also compared this explosion to the Soviet nuclear disaster at Chernobyl. They've been saying that the explosion was a direct result of years of negligence and corruption. So would you characterize the explosion as Lebanon's Chernobyl? You know, I generally try not to... Uh, in, in in my written work or when I speak to, you know, make these kind of grandiose comparisons and analogies. Uh, but of course, uh, it seems clear, at least the evidence that's been uncovered thus far, is that, in fact, um, this explosive material that was left at the port by some uh, reports six or seven years uh, is the result of uh, negligence and uh, corruption and government dysfunction, which is something that you know, I think has been clear in the aftermath of the Chernobyl disaster um, that um, the the Soviet system was also corrupt, also dysfunctional. There were negligent Soviet officials uh, that made a bad situation worse. So if we want to carry through with the analogy, and again, I'm a little uncomfortable with that, 
Um, yes, uh, it, it, all the evidence right now suggests that um, the Lebanese government uh, overlooked this for whatever reasons, uh, and then uh, a tragic series of events on August 4th uh, led to this massive explosion that leveled a good portion of Beirut. Stephen, there's been a lot of discussion in international media about the lead up to the tragedy that Lebanon is facing already structural issues within society that have become worse from this explosion, one of which is the near economic collapse of the Lebanese economy. We've seen hyperinflation, um, difficulty to service government debts by the government. Could you describe to our listeners the extent of the Lebanese economic crisis? Yeah, I think, let me just clarify for a second. I think you, you referred to, to you know, the, the near collapse or the coming collapse of the, of the Lebanese economy. The Lebanese economy has, has collapsed. Uh, and, uh, there's a, a, a chain of events that began in 2019 that have led, uh, to this situation, uh, in, in which the Lebanese government, um, unable to, uh, it didn't have enough revenue, um, and started limiting people's access to dollars. Uh, the Lebanese economy is built on real estate services and transfers from the Lebanese diaspora abroad. And in non-financial institution transactions going back to early 2019, the Lebanese government was limiting those transfers uh, to Lebanese lira, even if the transfer was supposed to be in dollars. And that was the first sign for people that something was amiss in the Lebanese economy. And this, of course, led to an increased demand for dollars. The problem is, is that when you have an increased demand for dollars, the private banks can't lend money to the government in dollars. Uh, and that's what that's how the lending is done. What, what private Lebanese banks have done is provided a very attractive interest rates to attract dollar deposits and then turned around and lent it to the government. That's the only way that the Lebanese economy has remained afloat. But when there was an increased societal demand for dollars and dollars started going out of the system, the Lebanese government could no longer repay the banks, the dollars that it owed it, and people's savings dried up. Then what you have in a desperate effort to raise revenue, the government tried to slap a tax, a 20 cents a day tax on WhatsApp communications, beginning with the first WhatsApp communication. This sparked protests in October 2019 that lasted throughout the fall and the winter. The tax was pulled back, but by that time, people had already uh, demanded basically the end of the Lebanese regime. Then what happened to the beginning of 2020? Well, the global coronavirus pandemic. Uh, in an effort to uh, arrest the transmission of the virus, the Lebanese economy shut down like economies all over the all over the world, just as there was a uh, depreciation of the lira because of these imbalances uh, in between the banks and the government and lending and so on and so forth. And it's a long, complicated story. So you have so many people who are thrown out of work who are suddenly now facing Prices, higher prices, rampant inflation, as you mentioned, they're forced to barter. Electricity is uh, one or two hours a day 
Food is scarce to the point where now about 50% of the population, maybe more, are either in poverty or absolutely destitute. Um, food secure insecurity has increased uh, by significant amounts. And obviously people are upset and they are demanding the end of the regime in, uh, in, in Lebanon. And um, post-explosion, we're seeing an intensification of protests and demands for change. Following up on this demand in um, the, this demand from the citizens for widespread change in the government, um, in your July 2020 article, you discuss the widespread corruption in Lebanon's political class and the underlying deficiencies of Lebanon's political system. Could you describe some of the structural political issues within the Lebanese system? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and and you have to go back a, a ways to the French uh, colonial presence in, in Lebanon, in which the French colonial policy was essentially to manipulate uh, Lebanon sectarian and ethnic differences in a way that benefited their allies, the Christians in 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 Lebanon, and what it did was it set up. This this confessional political system in which there was the, in, in which political power and thus economic power were divided among uh, Christians, different sects of of Muslims, and then apportioned out accordingly. Um, it, the the idea was, I mean, the the, the generous uh, interpretation of this was a way to keep peace in this very diverse. Uh, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-religious society. Uh, what it really was, was the French, as I said, manipulating uh, Lebanon's uh, society to benefit its, its allies there. Um, civil war broke out in the country uh, beginning in 1979 and lasted until 1989. Um, and what, instead of moving away from this system that did contribute to uh, hostilities among different groups, in, in Lebanon, they essentially returned to the same system. And the people who led the system were essentially the same people who led different factions during that uh, almost 15-year uh, civil war. There had, were times in 2015 after the so-called, uh, not 2015, 2005, after the so-called uh, Cedar Revolution, that there were commitments to move away from the system. It never really happened. And what this has done, because everything was divided in certain ways among different ethnic and sects. So for example, the president of Lebanon has always been a Christian. Uh, the prime minister has always been a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of the, of the Lebanese parliament has always been a Shia. And then different sects of Christians and Muslims were then divvied up in the parliament. What this created was an effort on the part of uh, leaders uh, to direct state resources that they control to their own specific constituents. Rather than thinking about Lebanon and the Lebanese nation, they were thinking about their sex and their groups and, uh, and, 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 and shoveling state resources to these different groups. This bred corruption and total dysfunction because no one was thinking about the broader issues of Lebanon. They were thinking about feeding this beast of corruption and dysfunction in order to ensure their uh, their political support. This obviously has had negative consequences for governance in, in Lebanon. And people clearly have had enough. 
And again, the triggering event was this effort last October for the government to raise revenue by slapping a tax on WhatsApp. Uh, and people said, we've had enough and came out in, into the streets. And what they're demanding is not just a change in government. That, that protest led to the resignation of Saad Hariri, the, 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 the prime minister. But that really wasn't enough. And, and it's clear because the demonstrations continued. People really want a change in this system. Uh, they want a political system that reflects national aspirations, not just uh, sectarian or ethnic aspirations. So what has the government done anything to tackle the structural issues within Lebanon and beyond the religious um, challenges? What other challenges have faced this new government in trying to tackle um these issues that the average citizens are bringing up? Well, look, it's, you know, there's been some lip service paid to moving away from uh, sectarian politics. Um, That's, but, but it's been lip service. There really hasn't been much. And then of course, you know, the major, uh, another major challenge in Lebanon, and this is the, you know, the, the 800 pound gorilla, the elephant in the living room, you know, is the fact that there is a state within a state in Lebanon. And it's called Hezbollah. And the secretary general of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, has his own army. And his own army is an expeditionary force throughout not just Lebanon, but in the Middle East um, that has essentially held the country hostage. Um, I remember I was on my way to Beirut in 2008 and had to, at the very last minute, change my plans and go straight on to Damascus. Because um, there was uh, there was uh, the controversy of the day in 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 Lebanon, and there was a perceived challenge to Hezbollah's authority. And what did they do? Hezbollah just deployed its forces throughout the city, and forcing the government and its opponents to to back down. So um, this government, uh, uh, the president uh, President Aoun, uh, the prime minister Hassan Diab. And many others are actually allied to or support or supported by Hezbollah, um, which breeds tremendous discontent among Hezbollah's opponents uh, in the country. So there are multiple manifold, interlocking, overlaying complex problems that face uh, Lebanon in terms of its political structure, its politics and and the ability of its leaders to govern. So as of recording this episode, um, 30 minutes ago, there's been some reports that even more disruption might occur in the government. Um, since the Beirut program, uh, since the Beirut explosion, we've seen a fresh new wave of protests against the government. Um, and as of, like I said, as of 30 minutes ago, reports have been released that the prime minister um, is expected to resign today. Um, what do you think the lasting effects of these rapid changes in government will be? Well, if the reports are in fact true and that Hassan Diab is going to resign or has already resigned, it's certainly it's certainly a good sign that, you know, the people who are overseeing this corruption and this economic collapse, you know, Lebanon defaulted on its debt last March. Um, It's a good thing that these people are going. Um, The problem is what comes next? Who is going to? 
Who's going to be the interim leadership? Will this satisfy people? And, and it's not just enough to have an interim leadership and then organize elections. And how would you even do that in the, in the current state of chaos where Lebanon's needs, the, the needs of the Lebanese people are so great? Is what does this, any interim government or new government do in order to fundamentally alter this political system that has um, that is you know sectarian or confessional in nature, and that has bred dysfunction and 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 and, and corruption. This is the frame through which many have looked at Lebanon, and there are many who want to change it. But what is how does this change? How do it, how do you actually have a, a revolution in Lebanon that overthrows not just the political system but the social order? that has reinforced this political system, that social order, those people benefit from it. So it's not just a question of the government resigning and an interim government organizing new elections. What are the mechanisms by which change can happen that Lebanese can look forward to a, a better future? So in, in the, of course, in the immediate sense, getting rid of these people is a, is a good thing. But what comes next is really the hard problem. If you look at the Middle East and you look at the, the so-called Arab Spring, which a, a term I only rarely use, um, it's been hard. It's been very, very hard to get beyond these, these political systems that people had wanted to overthrow. The only one that has shown demonstrable progress is Tunisia. Um, the rest of them are either countries that are in total disarray or you see resurgent uh, authoritarianism. So, you know, Lebanon um, could become another failed state in the region and failed states are, you know, ruled by, you know, warlords, there's violence, there's tremendous need, hunger. Um, it's, it's something that is significantly uh, destabilizing. Let's hope the Lebanese are able to avoid that outcome. Stephen, last Thursday, President Emmanuel Macron visited Beirut and promised to mobilize aid for the city. What role do you expect France and other foreign actors to play in Lebanon in the coming months, especially if the regime does collapse, as you have previously mentioned? Yeah, you know, it was an extraordinary visit by Macron. Um, you know, France is the former colonial power in Lebanon. And the outpouring of people in the streets, uh, you know, help uh, demanding, uh, beseeching him for help and for him to go around uh, around the government was something extraordinary, especially, like I said, this is a, the, the former colonial power. These are not things that are easily uh, for easily forgotten. So um, it was an extraordinary visit. The, you also have um, the an, an outpouring on the part of countries that had been previously reluctant to help Lebanon, um, countries like the United Arab Emirates, uh, the Qataris, who have sent immediate aid in the in the aftermath of uh, of these twin explosions? Um, the Turkish foreign minister and vice president also showed up uh, in Beirut, vowing to help. Um, and I think the 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 concern is uh, is that is, is a couple of things. One, what role can the French play as the former colonial power without seeing being seen as if it wants to? reassert its colonial power in Lebanon. And I think Macron and the French government have to uh, tread very, very carefully here. Uh, the question with regard to other outside powers, uh, the Emiratis, the Turks, the Chinese, the Russians, all of whom have expressed an interest in 
playing a role or the role in rebuilding uh, uh, Beirut's port area is that all of these countries in one way or another, particularly the Emiratis and the Turks and the Russians, are engaged in proxy conflicts and rivalries in other parts of the Middle East, whether it's the Gulf, whether it's Libya, uh, whether it's in the Eastern Mediterranean. And is this inviting yet another proxy conflict in Lebanon, where there's already a proxy conflict that played out regularly between Israel and the Iranians? Um, so is this a, a, a so again, there are significant challenges to Lebanon and the Lebanese people from these outsiders who are willing to help, even if you say uh, it comes from the goodness of their hearts. It's hard to imagine how these regional rivalries aren't going to then be trans transferred into the effort to assist Lebanese and rebuild Lebanon after both this explosion and as well as these many months of protest and economic collapse. And then, of course, there's the Chinese who very quietly have been in Lebanon's second city, Tripoli, and have prior to the explosion on August 4th, have uh, presented their plan to the Lebanese government for assisting them through this uh, through this financial and economic crisis. Um, which also has its own uh, its own complications because given the state of Sino-American relations, uh, if the Lebanese were to go all in with the Chinese, that would have an impact on the IMF because the United States is the big dog at the IMF and has all the influence at the IMF. So it would impact the IMF's ability to help the Lebanese as well. So as I said before, multi-layered complexity is is going to be a problem and regional rivalries and global rivalries indeed are going to make things uh, potentially more difficult uh, in Lebanon. All right. Um, I'd just love to take our conversation back to a point that you actually made earlier, Stephen, and I love that you brought it up. So COVID-19, obviously, this has been a massive pandemic that has affected us all across the world. And according to an estimate by the current administration, Lebanon's ICUs will be overwhelmed by cases by mid-August, especially in major population centers like Beirut, which was just absolutely devastated. So could you first speak to how COVID-19 has particularly affected Lebanon and what the situation on the ground is like for Lebanese? Yeah, you know, um, initially the Lebanese did a fairly good job in um uh, containing or mitigating the the virus's spread, um, they did undertake a shutdown, which I, as I mentioned before, did have an, an economic impact. But it did seem that Lebanon was uh, did for a time have an upper hand uh, in, 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 against the virus, and combine the fact that actually Lebanon has pretty good hospitals. Um, people from other parts of the Middle East, if they didn't uh, seek care in Europe or the United States often went to, to, to Lebanon for care. The problem has been resources uh, and that with the economic crisis, the hospitals have been unable to acquire the kinds of things that they need uh, to provide care for people with, uh, with, the, um, with, the, with COVID-19. Now, of course, with the breakdown of the economy and the breakdown essentially of, of, of Lebanese uh, governance structures, if not society, you can see that the society is quite robust and civil society organizations are quite robust. Um, COVID-19 uh, cases are, are accelerating. And again, uh, with uh, the economic crisis and the, and the collapse of the Lebanese government, um, the lack of electricity, you know, the, the 
overall, the ability to manage this crisis is greatly, greatly diminished. So I, I think, you know, Lebanon borders on countries that have struggled to contain the virus. Uh, and it's likely that um, Lebanon's future with regard to COVID-19 and containing uh, the spread of coronavirus is, is likely not to be successful at all. And of course, given the blast and a lot of political instability that we're likely to be seeing in the next few months, do you think that you know the situation on the ground in terms of the explosion in Beirut, as well as the increasing number of cases in large population centers, do you think those two will play a role in affecting the way that the government can effectively respond to each of the different health crises that are currently going on, especially in that city? Well, I think... Um... I think the, the Lebanese government, uh, whether it's this government, an interim government, or a government that is newly elected in, in some way, is going to face these multiple challenges and aren't and they're not well equipped, uh, not well equipped to deal with it. So I, I think if you can see by the protests and the people in the streets, uh, people are less concerned about uh, the spread of coronavirus than they are in getting in, in turning over. Uh, the political system. It's clear that um, they're willing to risk infection if it means that their voices are heard and that they, uh, they, they effectively bring an end to this government and an end to this political system. But over the longer term, of course, if there is a tremendous acceleration of the number of cases, um, it's going to put tremendous amount of pressure on Lebanese society where people can't afford medication, they can't afford food, they can't afford the basics um, where barter has become the norm for people in poorer sections of the country, particularly Tripoli, which is a, a poorer city than, than Beirut, where people live, you know, cheek by jowl. It's uh, COVID-19 is not going to go away because there is uh, because there is tremendous instability. In fact, it is going to increase. So this is, again, think about the multiple levels of challenges and complexity facing anybody who uh, is uh, going to come to power uh, in Lebanon. And it really doesn't look good. And that's why, you know, uh, I'm perhaps uh, more pessimistic than most people about generally everything. Um, So I think that Lebanon's future is more likely to be a a failed state um, than uh, a successful uh, overthrow of the system and, and the rebirth of a new, uh, more equitable, more just, uh, open and fairer system. Since COVID-19, since the COVID-19 pandemic began, pandemic began um, countries across the world have discussed how existing inequalities have been exacerbated. And this, of course, exists in Lebanon on top of the devastating explosions last week. You talked kind of a little bit about um, maybe a more pessimistic mind um, about the future of Lebanon as a failed state. Um, what does it mean for the region and for the global stage um, if Lebanon does have a fa- does become a failed state in the near future? Um, and what can we realistically expect to happen for Lebanon um, going forward? Yeah, I think, look, I, I, the failure of Lebanon, which I'm not even sure we can call it, I, I, I think it is a failed state. Um, I don't think it's going to be a failed state. I think it is a failed state. And what it does is it invites two things. One, um, political entrepreneurs within Lebanon, 
uh, to advance their agendas uh, basically with impunity. Um, and so whether it's uh, new political ideologies, old political I- ideologies, uh, whether those, ad- those agendas are advanced uh, with the help of weaponry or not, I think it invites the po- all of these possibilities. Um, it, and uh, despite what very many Lebanese have articulated that they want, and what I think this invites, again, people within Lebanon, despite the fact that they want to get beyond this sectarian order, in this collapse, in this failure, will likely seek aid and support within their own communities, meaning their own religious or ethnic communities, which only deepens uh, divisions through which political uh, entrepreneurs can play on to advance uh, their agenda. So it raises the specter, once again, of communal violence in Lebanon. Then... Going back to what I was saying before, you have regional actors who may not be able to resist the temptation to advance their regional agendas through the in 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 another arena in another collapsed state. Look at the collapsed states around the region: Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Libya. In all of those places, you have external actors in addition to internal actors. The external actors are manipulating, playing on the internal divisions of the country to advance their regional agendas. I don't see how one can avoid that in Lebanon in a situation of state failure. Um, So again, it contributes to obviously death, destruction, uh, the, the further spread of the coronavirus and regional instability. Um, and the people caught in the middle are the poor Lebanese who've only wanted something better for their future. And again, and keep in mind, keep in mind that Lebanon, people in Lebanon, these factions are well armed and that there is, there's an army in Lebanon, but there's an even bigger one. It's called Hezbollah, which isn't easily going to give up what it has achieved in Lebanon since the early 1980s, which is a state within a state. Uh, and uh, it has grown powerful and rich as a result. Well, Stephen, we all really appreciate the insights that you've given us today. I think this is definitely information that we're going to take with us later today if we see the prime minister resign, and I think as the entire world keeps its eyes on the region and specifically on Lebanon. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins P-O-F-A on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, give us a subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.